the only way that you can instill that in other people is through example, is through this is this is me, this is where I came from, this is what I experienced, this is how I overcome my traumas, my fears, my anxieties, my hatreds, my jealousies, my violence, my self-harming. The only way I overcome it was by doing this, by doing your sadhana, whatever your sadhana may be, whether it's karma yoga, raja yoga, jnana yoga, raja yoga, ashtanga yoga, hatha yoga, nad yoga, leya yoga, they're all there. You know, Indians have been studying them for two and a half thousand years, three thousand years, and they've all been catalogued. And you don't have to make anything up. You can be inspired and inspire other people. You can be inspired by thousands of years of Indian philosophy, and as it's been assimilated into the West within the last hundred years, hundred fifty years. Welcome to a Curious Yogi podcast. I'm your host, Bobby here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. All right, welcome back to A Curious Yogi. Season two, here we go. Starting off with a banger conversation with my teacher, Stuart Gilchrist, one of my favorite, most inspiring humans. Uh, we had a great conversation during the International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh. Uh, I had the pleasure of spending a few weeks there with Stu and his crew from around the world, all students studying with him at his school, the East London School of Yoga. Uh, Stu is an experienced yogi, teacher, political activist. He holds an MA in Traditions of Yoga and Meditation from SOAS University in London. As well, he's a PhD candidate there in yoga-related research. Originally coming to the Ashtanga Vinyasa Mysore practice to heal a back injury, Sue also mentions that coming to the yoga practice helped out his anger and addictions as well. And Stuart Sadhana led him towards an extensive yoga education with teachers from around the world who have had a profound effect on his style of teaching. He infuses his high-energy, challenging teachings with yogic knowledge as well as his very unique charisma, politics, and humor. He's been teaching practitioners and teachers for well over 20 years. And on a personal note, he's had a very deep impact on my own practice. I'm so in awe of Stu's brilliant ability to bring the student or listener beyond what they thought was possible, both physically and metaphysically. This is a mind-stretching combo ahead. I'm forever appreciative of the sincerity and generosity at the heart of his radical traditionalist approach to teaching, practicing, and living yoga. In his own words, he says, I stay true to my ontological anarchist faith. I serve the practitioners who study with me. I try to speak my mind without hurting people, and I remember my teachers. So without further ado, here's Stu. Welcome to the podcast. We're here in Rishikesh on the banks of the Ganga. It's so exciting to just be here and practice with you. So I want to start by appreciating and acknowledging you just for 
on a personal note, being such an inspiration in my practice for the last two years. And, and it's like so full circle because here at the yoga festivals where we met you yeah. three years ago, which is crazy. So I just really, yeah. really respect and my appreciate pleasure, you. Bobby, my pleasure. And I'm excited for the conversation because I'm feeling so inspired from practice from the last two days. I do want to ask you a little bit about, you know, your story and how you came onto this mm. yogic or deeper path, which we'll get to. But to start, like, I really just want to, like, dive into what we've been talking about in practice the last couple of days, which is the yamas, the niyamas, the root of the tree. That's, yeah, yeah. And at first I was like, mm, the yamas and niyamas are kind of like you know, over talked about, but yet they're over talked about, but under kind of lived or, yeah. or respected in that way. Yeah, yeah. So we can just like jump in. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to start because in essence, everyone who really comes across modern postural yoga and particularly Patanjali and Ashtanga yoga, the first thing they come across are yamas and niyamas. And these these ethics and moral restraints, uh, they're almost ubiquitous amongst all modern yoga teachers. They're always teaching the, the eight limbs yoga, they're always teaching yamani, yama, sana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi. And um, they talk about them a lot, but how much of it is actually put into practice or not is another question. And I think you're quite right to bring it up as a good start because the fundamentals of that sadhana, if there's three different sadhanas and that's the first sadhana, the first spiritual practice that you undertake in Patanjali, um, it's the beginning. It's what Indian boys and girls would become familiar with when they're children. They'd, be, they'd have these ethics and morals instilled and they'd also have the asana, the physical embodied practice instilled when they're young. Whether they maintain that or not is another question. but. In the West, I think everybody becomes familiar with these principles. And how well they are practiced, I'm not too sure. Even by reputable teachers and practitioners, I'm not too sure if they're practiced at all um, with any sort of due diligence or any um, authenticity. And that for me is suppose it's a bit worrying, it's a bit disconcerting mm -hmm. to, under, to undertake a path and undertake a practice, undertake a way of life, because yoga is a way of life, it's not just an exercise obviously, then you would start with Ahimsa, you'd start with the underlying principle of the other nine, because none of the, the same way Avidya supports the other four kleshas in yoga philosophy, in Patanjali's philosophy, um, Ahimsa sort of props up the other nine because the other nine are pointless without non-violence, mm -hmm. without non-harming. The etymology of it, the whole academic background to the word is quite interesting, whether it's harming or non-harming, whether it's violent, non-violent, whether the two polar opposites, Ahimsa and Ahimsa, um, whether they're non-violent or violent or harming or non-harming, depends on who you talk to, whether you talk to a Buddhist or whether you talk to a Brahmin or whether you talk to a Jain uh, or MD else or someone who practices Satyagraha, a uh, follower of Gandhi. Um, you've got different interpretations of it. And now, as you know, you're perfectly aware in the 
in the West, the modern interpretation is really closely linked to veganism, to non-harming non any sentient being, any animal, which of course would lead you to a life of not eating, not wearing or not using any animal products. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where it is. My practice is in that modern postural practice where we use ahimsa in, in a vegan sense, that yoga is vegan. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, I've went through several stages in my life of going through being vegetarian, going through being raw food vegan, fruitarian, mono, mono fruitarian, and then I've got, I'm quite happy with just having a non-harming diet now. And um, I think that's become the quintessential ahimsic property for modern postural yoga practitioners. Is veganism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, I mean, even we've talked about it here, being in this ashram and like seeing yoga in India, this whole seemingly huge jump as yogis to go from vegetarians to veganism. And like in the West, it's, it's a little bit more people think it's either you're a meat eater, you're consuming this way and, and still they practice yoga, they practice the asana. And then but like to go all the way to vegan seems extreme and then there's this idea of like morality as um, it's subjective or personal but mm. yet like as yoga practitioners like there has to be like you said that authenticity or like earnestness mm. behind like living yoga but it's like this like gap like yeah 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 I think that gap comes about because people are, they're not willing to make that that they don't have that burning desire, that tapasya. The tapasya is the burning desire to succeed at that path, to succeed at practicing yoga. There's no, um, there's no, um, there's no one particular way that people can bring that burning desire about, apart from their own willpower or having good teachers. And a lot of the teachers in the West, especially, aren't good teachers, and they're not going to inspire a burning desire to live a non-harming ahimsic life because they don't follow it themselves some of the teachers mm -hmm. so there's not that there's not that um, influence or inspiration that comes from vegan teachers themselves because a lot of the yoga teachers that come across in the west aren't vegan a lot of them wear leather use leather um, smoke cigarettes drink alcohol and to me I, I see that as the antithesis of yoga it's clearly set down in in various yoga texts mm -hmm. from the early Upanishads in relation to alcohol and drugs that it's not part of of social, it's not part of having a purity, a cleanse of the body and cleanse of the mind. You can't mm -hmm. have a clean mind unless your body's clean. Mm -hmm. You can't experience that that social, which is as you sort of you can jump about the the, ya, the yamas and the niyamas and you'll see how they're all interrelated, but there you have a clear connection between Sosha and Ahimsa, mm -hmm. and you have connections between Aparigraha and Ahimsa, you have connection between all the nine limbs, yeah. all the nine yamas and niyamas with Ahimsa, mm -hmm. because it's so, it's so interdependent with every one of them, mm -hmm. and the whole yoga practice, and the whole yoga practice, I think. Yeah. And um, I think it's quite disconcerting and quite frustrating, in a way, to see people not following that simple path, not, not being able to follow something, to be so disciplined just to follow something simple mm -hmm. as to save an animal's life. Yeah. 
And I think you also have to not only consider it as a health option. Veganism in the West in the last five years exploded. It's everywhere. In the UK, veganism is huge because of flexitarianism, because of people trying veganism, because of people inventing and creating different foods that are vegan, that replicate other foods, mm -hmm. i.e. meat and fish foods. So um, I think that's quite worrying in its own way. But one of the biggest important things about the, the growth in veganism is the almost parallel um, regression in human rights. So animal rights is getting a bit more higher up the agenda, but at the same time human rights are coming down the agenda. Human rights and the welfare of human beings is almost counteracting. It's, it's, it, they're weird parallels and they're not interconnected in any way, but there's definitely a parallel where, where people's concern for, for animals or their own health, and I think it's more to do with their own health than animals, mm -hmm. to follow a vegan path, is almost um, the mirror opposite of people's respect for human rights yeah. and expect for the, ability, the socio-economic rights of people, the, the, the rights to employment, the rights to, for women, the rights to LGBTQ. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the era of right-wing extremism, from Trump to, to Le Pen to Salvini, all over Europe, there's a total um, reduction in human rights. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important that people who are conscious vegans, who are active in animal rights, don't forget human rights. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah, and, and like, environmental rights, obviously. And like as yoga practitioners or people that are seemingly sincere on this path to have to consider the the impact of our choices, not only for our 60, 90 minutes on our little six foot mat, and then I'm, I'm wondering, like you said before, about that real burning desire for freedom and happiness, which like yeah, yeah. we all really have that desire. But like I know for me and my journey and hearing from you of your journey, like dealing with drugs and alcohol, so much of like the discontentedness with the world, like the frustration of sometimes being yeah, yeah. a human for some people, like have turned to drugs and alcohol and then yeah, yeah. or any kind of substance or behavior that's actually not clear, not sattvic. And then to come onto the path and slowly start to remove those things to like yeah, yeah. face what it means to be a human, to be someone yeah, yeah. seeking truth. How does that all intersect, you know, like and, as seekers yeah, yeah. and like moving towards this sattvic way of living, this yogic way of living? Mm. Well, I think when we all, when we all realize the inhumanities and the injustices of modern lives, it can't make it, it can make us frustrated and irritated and annoyed. And I don't think that's such a bad thing. I don't think anger. A lot of people, a lot of yogis say you mustn't be moody. You mustn't have experienced mm -hmm. anger. You mustn't have experienced. I've seen a lot of wise spiritual people experience anger in different ways. I've seen people that are really admired as spiritual people being angry for a very short period of time but then using that anger in a very positive way. There's a few teachers talk about it. I think Iyengar talks about it in, in one, one passage where he sees his guru like really rebuking one person about something he or she did, but then within the next instant being really kind. But that was the only way that person would understand mm -hmm. his ire and his, 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 um, his anger and his um, dissatisfaction. But I think, I think personally, um, Nobody in this world, even Mother Teresa, um, can manage 
um, total compassionate love for everyone, um, that that open Anahata chakra, that mm. open, that that unrequited love for yeah. everything and everyone. I don't think anybody can experience but that. You see, even in this kind of environment, the spiritual bypassing, like oh. It's all one, and yeah, like yeah, is yeah. that we're like, all connected, and it's all one, and and we are, and it's beautiful if that's where you're, you know, you're yeah. at. But but we still like have to take action, yeah, yeah, and like live in the world. So how do we live in the world, you know? Yeah, we live in the world by by making choices, by making mm. making decisions about where your where your boundaries are and where your limits are, mm-hmm. and um, if you if you if you can show that universal love and that unquestionable love for all human beings and all sentient beings that's an admirable thing but it's very admirable but I don't know how realistic it is and I don't know how sustainable it is otherwise in this society in a, in a very sort of capitalist greed based society you would soon find yourself quite downtrodden and possibly abused in a sense that people would use you and people would manipulate you for their own means because you are so amenable. And I think people have to have their own boundaries. I think people have to use their own judgment, their own self-governance, their own autonomy and make, make boundaries about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and what's possible and what's impossible mm-hmm. and what's... what. If you can, if you can cling on to an impossible dream for the rest of your life, all you end up is frustrated. So, if you have some utopian idea about how society is going to be and how how you're going to be compassionate towards all human beings and how you're going to have a an undying love for every single sentient being, you're being quite unrealistic, and you're never really going to appreciate like the achievement of that. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you can gradually put your boundaries a bit make them a bit less widespread and make them a bit closer you'll at least feel that contentment of doing the best you can do mm-hmm. when you can do it yeah and i think that's all one of the teachers used to say just do the best you can do and do it well mm-hmm. and that should be sufficient mm-hmm. and it's the same on the mat as often that yeah think. what about this phenomenon or like you know, yes, it's kind of implied that yoga practitioners or anyone that's you know deeply spiritual or on this sort of inner quest that we should live moral lives that we should be good humans but it's also personal and subjective so mm. how do we uh, you know well you can't legislate for morals can you no I mean, people so. have tried to re- legislate morals in the past mm-hmm. and um, you have to be aware of the difference between morals and ethics moral moral morality isn't an ethical principle so you can't really inflict your own morals on other people, but you can instill ethics on in other people so they respect them, your children, your, the way you educate people. You can make them philosophically um, respect certain ethics within society, i.e. Um, um, gay rights, women rights, human rights, environmental rights, um, all, all the rights that we never had until 150 years ago. I don't... I don't know about Canada, but women couldn't vote 120 years ago in Britain. And even up to 80 years ago, they never had universal suffrage. So women's rights is a very a very recent thing. Civil rights for black people in the southern states, it's not that old. Yeah. Gay rights, 
it was a criminal offence to have a gay, gay sex in Britain. It's still criminal sex to have, still a criminal offence to have gay relationships in, is it 57 countries in the world? So I think you've got to accept that we can make changes ethically, but we can't instill yogic morals upon everybody. That would be like instilling some blasphemy laws. Mm -hmm. So if you said we're going to have a law on veganism and everybody should follow this pattern. So for example, you're not allowed to slaughter a cow in certain states here. And if you do it, it's a criminal offence. But 32% of the population in India eat cows. It's a secular state under Article 14 of the Indian Constitution. You've got, you've, you've got the right to have any religion you want. Buddhist, Jain, Christian, whatever. Mm. Hindu. And the same in other countries. You can't inflict Sharia law. Yeah. On, or you, can, you can do that in, 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 in Afghanistan. But the Taliban can in, inflict Sharia, Sharia law on a country that's willing to accept it which seemingly Afghanistan is, whether it is or not. But if you take that and you take that metaphor and put it into a compassionate, caring, sharing world, which is totally ahimsic, you're going to have to start being dogmatic and you're going to have to start legislating your morals. And that's dangerous because mm -hmm. then that opens up doors of what we used to have in the old days of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. And then with these rights that we've had for such a short time, uh, Sex Discrimination Act in Britain was 1965, so women only got a fair wage, uh, same wage as a man. They still don't have a yeah. fair wage as a man. In 1965, they had a legal right to it. It still doesn't happen, obviously. But um, mm -hmm. you would lose all those things because because they were hard fought. A lot of those things were hard fought by for by people who were involved in um, changing the legislation. Mm -hmm. So then if you change the legislation and try to inflict morals in people, especially using neo-religious um, ideals, it's very dangerous, I think. Mm -hmm. Very dangerous. So then this issue or exploration of morals, it's a personal place for a self-inquiry to begin. Like, mm. what does it mean to me? Like, do people even ask? The questions to themselves like what exactly. does ahimsa mean to me what does non-violence mean to me or is it just moving through the the you know the kind of loose pillars that are yeah, yeah. Pre presented in the west of like living a non-violent life who would say i live a violent life no one yeah. it's actually i think you know we go to these yoga classes but how often do we sit and like prioritize the meditation and like you talk so much about the mauna and the silence to like sit and contemplate like what is santosha to me like you said setting the boundaries yeah. i think in a personal sense the only way that you can instill that in other people is through example is through this is this is me this is where i came from this is what i experienced this is how i overcome my traumas my fears my anxieties my hatreds my jealousies my violence, my self-harming. The only way I overcome it was by doing this, by doing your sadhana, whatever your sadhana may be, whether it's karma yoga, raja yoga, jnana yoga, raja yoga, ashtanga yoga, hatha yoga, nad yoga, leya yoga. They're all there. Mm -hmm. You know, Indians have been studying them for two and a half thousand years, three thousand years, and they've all been catalogued in the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Puranas. 
the Shastras, the Hatha Yoga texts, um, they're all there. You don't have to make anything up, but you can be inspired by and inspire other people. You can be inspired by thousands of years of Indian philosophy and as it's been uh, assimilated into the West within the last 100 years, 150 years. And then you can inspire other people to do it personally. But you can't instill it on MD, you can't force it on anybody, you can't, um, you can't advocate it as the way ahead because you've just got to say, this is what happened for me, this is what happened for other people I know like me, and if you want to try it, it might work for you. Mm-hmm. If not, it might be something else that works for you. Maybe something else works for you. Maybe total agnosticism and embodied practice of Qi Kung or Tai Chi works for you. Maybe, maybe being a Thai yoga therapist works for you and you can, you can be in server to other people and help inspire them by showing that you're willing to help their embodied self by, by treating them. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way left for people and it's a very small avenue that's left because of the industrialization of it. Then this whole industrial yoga complex and the way it's been uh, commodified and monetized, there's only a little small avenue left for you and uh, for a small amount of people to actually be inspiring, mm-hmm. to, to be inspiring. The rest of it is governed by, by business, by hedge fund managers, by unique selling points and revenue streams and that, that, that little window, that little avenue where you can show inspiration and you can show um, this is what I did, maybe it can help you, it helped him, it helped her, maybe it can help you, try it. Try it, it might not work for you but there's loads of other things that can work. Nada yoga work, might work for you, Ana yoga, yoga of food might work for you, um, Leia yoga might work for you, mm-hmm. but just try them, just try them and look at other people and see personally what worked for them. And then forget all the brands, forget all the commercialized yoga, just focus on what's in scriptures and shastras and texts and try and work out how they work because they've been there for thousands of years. Yeah. And they've worked for millions and millions and millions of Indians mostly through thousands of years. Yeah. And so there's no denying they work. The, the, the modern pseudosciences, modern allopathic medicine and modern psychotherapy, they've not existed for that long and they've not had great, I think things like the opioid epidemic in America, they've not had a great success, have they? Well, allopathic medicine and, and psychiatry, uh, the rise in schizophrenia, the rise in paranoid schizophrenia. When we were young, there was very little psychiatry, there was very little psychology, there was very little therapists. And with the growth of that pseudoscience of psychotherapy and psychology and the, the growth of the, of the, um, the other quasi-sciences, which people call science, from great pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. like um, Pfizer and other, country, and other companies, um, they've not got much of a track record. They've not been about that long. Whereas herbal medicine and, and natural medicine and yoga and other ways of treating people's maladies, it's been about for thousands of years, mm-hmm. to be honest. At least two and a half thousand years, three thousand yeah. years that we know. But just some of the Ayurvedic Yoga Shastras can go back like oral tradition of 20,000 years. Even though philologists and archaeologists will disclaim that as a guess, but there must have been some sort of oral tradition of, of medicine and wellness back before the written word. Mm-hmm. So I think it's personal. Yeah. And it's like, 
when you're talking about how old it is, it's almost hard for the mind to like wrap itself around like how mm. old that is. And when you talk about that like very narrow window of inspiration and like you know sincerity that is kind of there amongst all of the you know all of mm. the pseudoscience, all of the pharmaceuticals, all of the capitalism, all of this even here in world capital of yoga like yeah. and you see like get almost a bit like disheartened even here yeah, yeah. because i see so many people myself included that are sincere seekers that are that are dissatisfied with you know the way that like being a human is sometimes and then to even to see it here and actually to see it everywhere i feel the same when i'm in the west how much kind of crap there is to decipher between and for one that is lost in seeking like how do we even discern you know like yeah. what's what's sincere and what's kind of just there for all that stuff you just said yeah yeah i think that that what you just said about being discerning is so difficult so difficult it's so easy just for oh he's a lovely man he's such a nice speaker and he speaks so much sense and you know um I'm going to follow him for a while, you know, he's, you know, people do, I suppose some people must say it to me sometimes, but some pe people even, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a sad guru, and you can imagine some of the sad gurus who are here, and the, the swamis, and the, and the, the puja swamis, the, the, the sad gurus, the, the people who have got thousands and hundreds and thousands of followers, it's such a, a quagmire of, and, and, and as you say, to sift through that quagmire and be discerning is super, super difficult. It's super difficult to find something that you can find is sincere, is honest, is sattvic, is pure, is light. Uh, because everything's so cloudy, clouded in corruption, hypocrisy, greed, um, industrialization, um, commercialization, monetization, etc, etc. Yes, people have to exist. I have to exist as a yoga teacher. I have to pay gas and electricity. I have to pay for my living. I have to pay for my family. And people in my situation have to do that. People who own studios have to live. They have to. But there's a lot more difference from people making a living, a meager living or a reasonable living, than people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars, which is unnecessary. And the the yoga business is somewhere like I don't know what it was, a hundred and fifty six billion dollars a year or something. When I started, the yoga business was two pounds fifty in the church hall, with your favorite Ashtanga teacher, and that was it. And not many people practiced, and there was no studios. It was just it was then it was more real. And I actually meet my friends and talk about it and say, "Don't you miss that?" <laughs> Don't you miss going to a church hall which is freezing on a Tuesday night with no heater and being in your hoodie and your tracksuit and getting warm and then we pay for the church hall and it's £2.50 and then we we go for a coffee or something or a chat and we, all, we, we said the other day before I came here, I was chatting with my friend, he goes, do you not miss that? He goes, I really miss that. It was so much better then, wasn't it? Instead of, ah, I come to my new deluxe studio which is... $20, we've got massage and we've got saunas, we've got the best teachers in the world. I used to always think when someone used a hyperbole uh, uh, like and said, the best Thai yoga massage ever, the best yoga teacher ever, I always thought that was wrong. 
I always thought the worst thing in the world to say was, she's the best, you know, she's the best yoga teacher in London. And you know what? I got awarded Evening Standard Best Yoga Teacher in London <laughs> once. And I was looking at it going, oh my fucking God, that's all I detest. You know what I mean? For people to say, he's the best yoga teacher in London or whatever. Yeah. And like, I've sat and thinking, why would you want to say you're the best teacher? You know, I always say I'm a good teacher. I'm a good teacher, but not a great teacher. But I know I'm good because I wouldn't trust myself if I wasn't good. I wouldn't do it if I wasn't good. I'd have to be reasonably adept in my own mind before I did it, or I wouldn't do it. And I know there's great teachers out there, very few of them. But going back to what we were talking about, to find the inspiration, not only is it a narrow avenue, it's also got lots of tangents off it, and you can get waylaid and you can take a wrong turning. I've taken so many wrong turnings, and I'm sure you have, where you just think, oh, this is right for me, I'm going to follow this for a while. Oh, what's he done? Who is he? What's happened? Um, he did that, really? That's what he thinks? Oh my God, mm -hmm. I can't, I'm getting back on this path again. I can't, mm -hmm. you know, I made the wrong turn there. I've got to keep going down the road. Mm -hmm. And it's the same going up the hill. All the old yoga teachers used to say, we're going to get to Samadhi. Samadhi's on the top of the hill. Mm -hmm. And to get up that hill, you can go so many different ways. You can go straight up really fast. And that's one type of Samadhi. Then there's another type of Samadhi where you can go across the hill and up reasonably quickly with mindfulness and awareness. Mm. Then there's another path that you go very, very slow and deliberately. But we still get to Samadhi. It's just finding your way up that mountain. Mm. And sometimes you fall off the mountain. Yeah, just start over. Sometimes you fall like... off and you start over again. I've done that so many times. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. fallen off the mountain. I've got really angry, really bitter, really like jealous, really like not who I should be, not acted like I should have acted. When I first started, I had that so many times. It was like, I shouldn't acted like that towards my partner. I shouldn't acted like that towards my friends. Um, there was violence, there was drugs, there was everything. And it's like being a vegan. How many times did I become a vegan? A thousand. I'm a vegan now. I'll just have a cheese pizza tonight, that's all. Dirty and vegan, I Yeah, and then I'll go back to vegan next <laughs> yeah. week again, okay? And, uh, and then... Uh, you lose that, you, you know, you come off, not only is it a little narrow path of personification of finding your own way up that, that mountain, mm -hmm. but you fall off sometimes mm -hmm. and, it, and it can be harmful for other people. I definitely harmed other people when I fell off the mountain. Mm -hmm. I was not a nice person and I, I failed loads of times. The same way I had gorgonzola pizza quite a few times because I really liked it and then I had to go back to day one of being a vegan again. Mm -hmm. Same way with raw food, fall off the, fall off the, fall off the bike. Yeah, I'll just have hummus. Oh, well, that's my raw food gone for another year. All right, I'll start again. Okay, and eventually you get through it. Eventually, you're dis it's discipline, it's tapasya. That's what gets you through from being a, a cretinous human being in these, these times of dismay towards yourself. And you beat yourself up about it. Mm -hmm. you, you, you beat yourself up about the food. You beat yourself up about your relationships with others. Obviously more important the relationship with others and the way you act to other human beings and act towards animals. But um, eventually you just need that. For me, it's discipline. I can now, I can now give up. I can now just say, right, I did that wrong, so don't do that again, right, okay? Mm. Doesn't take very long now. But before I never had that discipline. I'm sure not many people do, but... Um, yeah, it comes with the maturity of the practice, I'm sure, and daily sadhana mm. and like 
it doesn't just yeah. have like today you said in class I didn't wait. No one's born to do these asanas in the same way. Like mm. we're not born to wake up and be completely unaffected. It's open, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe someone is, but I don't know yeah. if people are. If they say they are, what do they yeah. say? They say they have got it or they yeah. reached the, the reincarnations of the Dalai Lama, something yeah. like that. Yeah. 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 You're born to be a Lama. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's exactly. That's exactly right. That's what I don't. This is just completely my own take on it, but. I've only got like one experience lifetime to go on. I'm very much, I question transmigration a lot. I'm never too sure about transmigration. I always say to myself when I can hardly, the typical line that I learned from my teachers was, can you remember what you were doing three years ago on Tuesday the 3rd of May? I was like, I haven't got a clue, no idea. I was probably working, uh, working in a restaurant in Paris. So you can't remember that day. So how are you going to remember your past lives? I was like, well, I can't. Sometimes I think I can, but sometimes I can't. Most times, the majority of the time I can't. So I never have a clear, distinct, firm belief in transmigration. I never ever have that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ancient traditions and religions of India um, were quite anti-reincarnation compared to the Buddhists and the Jains. And the, the Jains... I've got a funny interpretation of reincarnation as well. I'm not even going to go into it, but it's very technical. I'm not even going to go into it. Okay, <laughs> okay but Jains, Buddhists and Brahmins obviously have a, a, this concept of reincarnation, of transmigration. Whereas some of the older some of the ancient religions and indigenous religions of North, Northeast India was called Magadha. They, they had like a very, oh well, you had the body, you've had it once and that's it, finished now, it's gone. Nothing else. There's yeah. no, there's, there is nothing else, and don't kid yourself. Sometimes I think like that. Okay. Sometimes I think like it's that. All, but like, because it, it could go either way, really. Like, do we really know? know? No, but, you don't know. But also, like, there's this sense of like, oh, reincarnation. I'll be back again. Like, I yeah. don't know. It, it's kind well, of like comforting law, somehow. You know, there's a law that there's, there's a spiritual law that says, well, listen, you're best believing in God anyway, just in case when you die, there is a God, <laughs> and you're okay. But if you didn't believe in the God all the way through life, when you die and you don't believe in God, you're in trouble then, aren't you? So you might as well hedge your bets and just say, oh, well, I believe in God anyway, just in case. <laughs> and it's, and, and in theosophy, it's got a name. It's called some, something's law. I forget what mm -hmm. it is, but it's got it's that, that sort of thinking. It's got mm -hmm. a name. I know we're going off a bit off a tangent, but I can go sort of tangential quite a lot, but... Because we're on the field of personification and teaching how, how reading how you go into these things. If you're scared of death, if you have a hinivesha, I always wonder if a hinivesha should be the first klesha and not the last. The first one is avidya. So avidya is ignorance or not knowing and it puts out the field. of um, Maybe you have to explain to people what kleshas are. Kleshas are causes of affliction, which Patanjali talks about in the second, in the, in the Satanapada and Yoga Shastra Patanjali. In Patanjali's Yoga Shastras, he explains um, these five afflictions, and they all come from avidya, they all come from, from knowing, or what some people call ignorance. It's really knowing, or not knowing. Knowing is vidya, and not knowing is avidya. So they say that's the field, they, they, they throw out the field for, um, for the ego, for ashmita, and then for dvesha, uh, for raga, sorry, and dvesha, which are attachment and aversion. And then the final one is clinging to life or, or fear of death. And I always think round the other way. If you've got that fear of death, 
and that's consciously in your mind and you can't get over that fear of death or that clinging to life, then you're going to grasp onto life and you're going to hate the fact that you're going to die. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first one, Vesha. So go backwards. Yeah. You're going to hate the fact that you're going to die. So you're going to grasp onto life, which is raga, which is attachment. And that will lead to ego because then you'll be like, you'll be ego driven all your life because you want to make the most of your life mm -hmm. because you're attached to it. Mm -hmm. And then that means you're ignorant. So I, saw, I, I managed to, in my mind, work Patanjali in reverse to deal with a lot of problems that stem from my fear of death. Because yeah. I definitely have a fear of death. Yeah, and anyone who says that they don't. You know, and my teacher, he also said this, the main and only fear, every other fear boils down to this fear root of death. fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I can say, oh, I'm not, I'm not afraid to die. I'm fine. I lived a great life. I have no regrets. But yeah. as if anyone's not afraid to die or yeah. like has that sense of clinging to this as my individual life. Mm. That audio that you played yesterday where he's saying, my life, my family, my house, my this, my that. Because that's our whole existence as yeah, a human yeah, yeah. from the time yeah. we wake up and reach for the breast of our mother. That's my mother, my milk. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's how yeah, kind yeah. of... Is that the d design of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody, as you say, a lot of the wise Hindus and a lot of the wise Buddhists will say, yeah, you, what is it, Bhagavad Gita? It's like changing your clothes. Mm -hmm. You're just going into the next life. It's like changing your clothes. I wake up and sit up at some night, sit up bolt straight and go, oh my God. <laughs> I still do it. I've done it since I've been a little boy. It doesn't matter how... How calm am I within myself? I know I know how to deal with it now. Obviously, when I was a little boy, I never knew how to deal with it, and I started crying, and my mum would come and see me. But I would sit up both straight, and I would just go, I don't want to die! <laughs> <laughs> I'd scream inside my head. I used to scream when I was a little boy to my mum. And I'm sure people do that continuously throughout their life. I'm sure I'm not alone in doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, if you if you continually with it, having that fear, as long as you can pass having done the best that you can do, cared and uh, catered for your loved ones and made sure that they're happy. And as George Harrison and other people said who, who, are, who are Hindus and proper, probably, if you can take Mahasamadhi on your own terms and just sit down, close your eyes cross-legged and leave your body, it'll be much easier. It'll be much easier than being in a car accident or being in a fire or jumping out the window because of the, you're getting burnt, just because of some traumatic death, basically. Mm -hmm. I think it was much easier if you can leave gracefully mm -hmm. and ahimsically. Yeah. That sounds contradictory. Mm -hmm. You're going to die, but it's an ahimsic death. It's, it's not, it's not a, a stabbing, it's not a, a shooting, it's not a, a rape and a murder. It's just leaving your body. Mm -hmm. I'm old. I think Swami Vivekananda did that. I think he took Mahasamadhi. Mm -hmm. Some of them take Mahasamadhi yeah. early. I think he got ill first, but they, I think the Hindus have pointed him out to taking it as a, I've done all my work on earth, so I'll just leave my body. Mm -hmm. And vaguely, one of our friends did that when he was in his late 40s, uh, early, late 30s, early 40s. Mm -hmm. And seemingly he did it. He just had enough. Yeah. And he just sat down and crossed his leg and closed his eyes. And mm -hmm. Whether he took drugs to help him or not, or whatever, but... Yeah. But I think if you have that constantly in the back of your mind, that can be prob problematic, to say the least, on that, on that little avenue of 
your personal life and how you can inspire other people if you continually got that fear of death um, in the back of your head is going to definitely lead to um, the other four places backwards mm -hmm. if you know what I mean from... yeah it's kind of interesting though like the design of the modern postural yoga practice as we have it now is like we have shavasana or mritasana at the end of practice which is kind of brilliant that this old practice or ancient practice i'm sure you could speak yeah, about practice. the age of how old yoga is but like that we lay down at the end and we if we actually right. are doing shavasana or experiencing yeah. it how do we do that we we because in the west too just the way that our you know christian culture is like death you push it away you fear it because we fear god and then yeah, yeah. it kind of you know we're co compounding the intensity whereas like in this beautiful practice we have whether you know yeah, we're yeah. sitting or laying to actually okay what is that? Prepare yourself for it. Let me look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you feel like it as well. Some mornings you feel like it. Yeah. If you're lying there for 15 minutes, sometimes you're dead for, you're really dead for yeah. 10 or 12 of them. And you're like, how long was that? Even? Yeah, yeah, you're like, how long was that? What, what, what happened there? Yeah. And a very similar thing you get that you'll experience that in is, is entheogenic plants, mm -hmm. is ayahuasca, is dimethyltryptamine, mm -hmm. is peyote, mezcal, LSD-125, certain other hallucinogens and entheogens, ibogaine. You can actually experience just leaving your body. I've experienced it so many times mm -hmm. where I am just a heap in the floor and my spirit can get up and move and walk about. And Whether that's a real spiritual happening, and I'm sure the plants have the knowledge to make that a spiritual happening. So that's when we cross over from reincarnation and spirituality is not exactly the same thing mm. your spirit can leave your body i think but it doesn't have to be reborn it can just remain a spirit and when i was spent time in south america and when i spent time doing ayahuasca and dmt here dimethyltryptamine and when i took psilocybin and mezcal and, and we did do it to its extreme we didn't do it just once every so often we did it a lot mm. i mean a lot scottish people have got a terrible 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 habit of doing things to the extreme yeah. we don't drink leisurely we don't drink socially we drink to drink we don't smoke marijuana leisurely we don't take lsd once every two weeks we take it for six days in a row oh my generation did mm -hmm. we'll experience six days in a row without sleeping much as it was recreational in the first place, there's also a really deep spiritual side to that, which only on retrospect can you, if you come out of it and you stay alive, and a lot of us didn't stay alive, you can see back of how that actually changed your mind and how that changed your whole being. Mm -hmm. And definitely, as I get older and I experience more psychedelic plants and I recognise the power of plants, entheogenic plants, I think all plants are entheogenic, by the way. I think every mushroom is entheogenic, it's got mycelium in it. Every green vegetable, every green plant has got a, an entheogenic property to it, it always your mind. Every fat, every fat within a plant like Utrika within a nettle can alter your mind because of the fats that's in certain green plants as well. And I think they're all mind altering plants and that's why I follow the diet that I follow as much as I can, which is based on greens which is based on sugars, greens and fats and because I believe it's mind-altering. Mm -hmm. So I think when you realise that your spirit can be set free in two ways, 
or for me, sorry, not you, for one's, one's spirit can be set free in two ways, by using food as medicine and by using food as, as a mind-altering way of transcending the body mm. and that state of shavasana mm. that you can experience from doing yogasana, meditation, laya yoga, nada yoga, karma yoga, bhakti yoga, um, tai chi, chi kung, you can experience it through those. You can experience it in the woods, when you're walking in the woods some days, when you do yatra, when you're just walking and you're meditating. You can experience it when you're in service for someone, when you're in seva, mm -hmm. when you're working without any need for reward, when you're doing something out the kindness of your heart. <laughs> right. you're ex you can experience that yeah. then as well, that spiritual freedom. And this is ancient, universal practices or ways of living with that mm. don't, you and know, plants they eat, plants that people have been eating it's since. It's the most fundamental yeah, yeah. part of like a human experience. It's mm. like we go through all the fear of death and all these things and in our makeup, yet we have the capacity to to live a life which is more transcended, more mm. clean, more pure, more all these things. But yet it, then it goes back to, you know, the muck that's kind of there that we have to weed through. But mm. it's ancient and you talked before yeah. about how old uh, just, this, you know, the scriptures, the practice, just all of it is there, it's available, and it's, and yeah. yet it seems so far away yeah. because of the world that we whether live it's, in. Whether it's Indian, or whether it's Mayan, or whether it's Australian Aboriginal, or whether it's Amazonian Aboriginal, or whether it's North European, whether it's Celtic, all that knowledge is there, all through this little blue dot, it's, and it's basically the same knowledge, it's the same plants. You might find this a bit strange, but I really believe that the whole key to knowledge and language are plants. If you read a book called The Cosmic Serpent by Professor Jeremy Narby, he'll he, he speak you through. He's a bio, he's a microbiologist who discovered entheogenic plants. The term entheogenic plants is, was first used by a guy called Jonathan Ott. Jonathan Ott wrote a book called, um, he wrote a whole history of psychedelic plants, basically. Yeah? And it's called Pharmacopoeia. And the pharmacopoeia lists every plant that can be mind-altering at that time. There are much more now that we realise. But I think that knowledge came to humans through plants. Knowledge came to humans through entheogenic plants, primarily through mushrooms, primarily through psilocybin and mycelium, but also through plants like Psychodria veridis and Banisteropsis capai, which is the main ingredient for ayahuasca and a whole host of other plants, peyote, peyote cactus. And I really believe that language came about because of plants and knowledge started becoming aware. Uh, humans had an awareness of some knowledge of how to communicate with each other because of plants. Uh, Terence McKenna has the same philosophy. Jeremy Narby, there's a whole host of mm. other psychonauts and other modern philosophers who have got the same ideas I've had. But I never got that from reading. I got that from taking the plant. Mm -hmm. And if you knew me before I took the plant and before I experienced the plant, if you knew me pre-21 years old and pre-35 years old, you wouldn't believe that I'm the same person I was after I took the plant. Because mm -hmm. I only started realising that my body could live in raw food after the plant told me so. I never went. I never had a, a psychedelic experience with DMT and other plants because I wanted to become a raw vegan who only mm -hmm. ate greens. That told me it was best if you did eat that for your own health and stop taking alcohol and stop smoking cigarettes and live a decent life 
look after your body, it's not working. That didn't come to me from a psychiatrist or a doctor, it came from a plant. Mm -hmm. It came from psychodriveridis, it came from dimethyltryptamine, it came from um, different distillations of certain plants. So I believe that the spirit that affected me is in plants. And isn't completely. it that those compounds that are in plants, like it's awakening some similar compound in ourselves, like in oh, yeah, our own totally. physiology? Like no, in your genes. Yeah, in your genes. Yeah. There's genes inside you that are billions of years old, huh? Yeah. There's, there's a gene inside you for every single, every single, every single repetition of your, your genetic pattern, of your genetic code. There's something that goes way, way, way back to the primal swamp until you crawled out of the mm -hmm. monocellular mass as a, as a, as a mono, from a monocell to a, a multicellular being, all the way through from crawling out from whatever you crawled out of to evolve to what you are now. Mm -hmm. That's why people are so energised and so stimulated in their brains by eating moss, by eating green moss, by eating, by eating seaweed, by eating plants that come from when we lived in the sea. So my, my, one of my favorite foods is phytoplankton. It's, it's food that comes from the sea. Mm -hmm. It's basically what whales would eat. It's basically what we ate tens of thousands of thousands of years ago when we were, when we were reptilian. Mm -hmm. And that's what made us evolve. So when we taste those tastes again and we, we, it reacts in our brain again, it has a, a huge effect um, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally and physically on your body. And I think if you do follow a diet, I follow a real strict diet of having at, at, least my, at least my amount of sea moss every single day. I eat, I eat Caribbean sea moss every day and I eat phytoplankton and probably spirulina every day. Mm. Because I know my body and part of my cellular makeup needs it because mm -hmm. it was there originally. Mm -hmm. Cannabis is one. Cannabis has been there for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. You've got cannabis. Do you know what it's called? Ananda. Yeah. It was christened Ananda, the blissful, mm -hmm. the blissful, the blissful gene. Mm -hmm. It's called Ananda. It's a, it's a cannabis receptor. It's been there for millions of years mm -hmm. inside your genetic makeup. And um, you can find foods and, and you can find different plants that feed those receptors and that will stimulate your whole well-being. I think. And then where does this intersect, you know, with our practice as yoga practitioners, you know, like well, it's all because, you know, if you to me as someone who I see as living yoga, like it's just that's the perception I have of you. And and how is this an extension of your yoga, you know? Living yoga like, has, has a laugh. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's probably not in the yoga sutras, like, take some mushrooms and, like, totally well, it is, transcend. So much, it is, yeah. But it's also, there. feed the sutras, yeah, yeah, you know, it, is, yeah. it is ancient, it's there oh, yeah, forever. Oh, yeah, yeah, feed so. the sutras, the soma's there long before that. Yeah. Uh, you, can read, you can read all the ancient um, Hindu, uh, Hindu historians and they'll talk about soma and the constituent parts of soma. And whether it's... Aminata muscaria, the, the red cactus, or whether it's other psilocybin cactus, mm -hmm. no, it's definitely part of yoga. Mm -hmm. And that's when the, when the Himalayan shaman and the Kashmiri shaman were, were discovering different aspects of what you know as modern yoga, um, they were taking hallucinogenic plants, definitely. Yeah, like Satchitananda is definitely experienced when, <laughs> you know. 
you're out of I'm the body in that yeah, way. Yeah, well, you just have to look at any of the any of the alchemy. You know, there's a whole branch of alchemy in, mm. in, in yoga and Ayurveda. There's Ayurveda, but there's um, Shastra. There's a Shastra practice, which mm -hmm. is all alchemy. So they use things like semen, mercury, um, different different hallucinogenic plants. Um, so yeah, obviously those mind-altering plants led to, you can, you can read a lot about it on Himalayan shamanism. And uh, that's obviously this very Himalayan context is, is Magadha, mm -hmm. is where, where, the, where the yoga practice came out of, where the, the Shramana tradition came out of the shaman tradition. So the Shramanas were the, the, Harapa, the Harapan civilization were very close to here, were very close in eastern western Magadha. And then they created two huge cities, beautiful structured cities with toilets and running baths, and then they were deserted. A lot of the people decided to leave the cities and go into the woods, into the forest, because they didn't want the, the industrialization of the city. They were the shramanas. They were the people who started putting in the foundations for yoga, for Buddhism, for Jainism, for all wow. the other ancient religions of India. So it actually came, it's like me and you now saying, oh, we've lived in, we've lived in Shanghai all our life. We're going to go and live in a commune in the country, and we take all the followers with us. That's what happened then. And out of that grew what we know as those religions, Hinduism, yoga, shramanism, all the shramanic beliefs came out of that, came out of forest people, going wow. back into the forest, taking off all their clothes, living off the fruit, taking hallucinogenic plants, discovering all the states of consciousness, meditating, meditating would have been their first practice. That's common. It's all in the art. We can find the archaeology. We can find the scriptures that go back. That, that state they were meditating, how they meditated, and then the word yoga starts appearing in the metaphysics of the Rig Rig Veda, and obviously it came probably a thousand, few thousand years before that. We can only guess as an oral tradition. Wow. So I think that whole context of shamanism and psychedelia and entheogenic plants is quite closely related to wherever yoga came from, whether it came from. Kashmir, Vajrayana, Tantra, or Buddhism, or whether it came from Jainism, or whether it came from the Brahmin tradition, which obviously did part of it. And um, they would have all used psychedelics. It would have been common for the, sh for the, for the shaman to use it. Uh, someone asked me about urine therapy. There's a lot in here. This book mm -hmm. here, Yoga in Modern India by Joseph right. Alter. The cow there's whole, there's, No, there's one in oh. human urine, but they also used Brahmin's urine. Because the Brahmins' urine, after taking the psychedelics, plants were also psychedelic. Wow. So the 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 yoga practice is called Shivambu Kalpa, the water of Shiva. So basically, the richest Brahmin and and or the most religious person, they would drink his urine, but he would have taken psychedelic plants. So they got psychedelic plants through his urine. The same way, uh, Eskimos like Tiri, the Samis, and all the people in the in the in in the frozen conditions would drink. The rainbow's urine, uh, the, the reindeer's urine, the reindeer's urine is full of psychedelia. So mm. they, they have psychedelia through the, through the reindeer's urine. So they have out-of-body transcending experiences mm. from, from, uro from urology, from urotherapy. And that's, that's just a tradition. There's no, there's no denying that. There's, mm. It's not hum mumbo-jumbo. And yeah. that's just what people did. You know, people nowadays, uh, urine therapists don't think twice about drinking their own urine. And they're raw food organic vegans. So in the old days, people would have done that quite normally. Hindus, 
the Hindutva aspect of cows now is that the cow poo is sacred. It cures cancer. You can eat it. It cures a whole host of other ailments and the urine the same. Wow, this I'm learning my mind. I'm probably gonna leave this conversation with my mind like slightly <laughs> like stretched a little bit to chew. You'd like that book? Yeah, yeah okay. it's academic. It's anthropology. It's not. It's not yoga. Yoga in modern India. Yeah, by Joseph Alter. Okay. Yeah, it's an anthropology book. It's not a yoga book. It's not like a textbook on yeah, yoga. Yeah. But it tells you everything to do with modern yoga in India and how it came about, mm -hmm. and it dispels all the myths that you might believe in, like the old. Or oh, the Vedanta one says sun salutation came from the ancient Vedic texts. <laughs> no, it didn't. It came from 300 years ago from a man in Kolkata <laughs> or a man in Mumbai. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's, um, he deals with science a lot, which is really interesting. Yeah, it is really yeah, interesting. Where, how science got integrated into yoga, because to make yoga popular, they had to have some sort of scientific backup to show it worked. So they started doing experiments mm -hmm. on rats, making rats in test tube do headstands. That's one of them. It's quite weird, yeah. <laughs> But the whole book's interesting like that because it's like goes through a lot of politics, social, economic change, and um, different sciences and different quasi sciences and pseudo sciences of how just to support that yoga worked because mm -hmm. it couldn't rely on just the fact that it's a mystical practice and it works without explanation. Mm -hmm. It had to have maybe in the twenties and the thirties it had to have science. Maybe last year, maybe last century, it had to have science to say yoga works for chronic chronic fatigue. You know, yoga works for poor hearts. Yoga works for, you know. So they had yeah. to scientifically start proving things. Mm -hmm. So that that deals with that quite a bit, which is interesting. Wow, well, it is. It's so interesting. Like, you know, obviously you've been not just since you started yoga, but like inquiring and pondering and thinking and reading and learning and researching. Like, you know, kind of such a vast array of things mm. in including yeah. yoga obviously you know you're you're london's best yoga teacher <laughs> even <laughs> standard i'm definitely not i know at least four or five that much better than me yeah, so. <laughs> um, um yeah yeah it's a sort of polyglot existence sometimes to understand it all you've got to understand you've got to understand a bit more than just eight limbs of yoga and an interpretation of patanjali yeah, and we have uh, to question and like ask because, you know, there's so much potential out there to just hear something, see something and believe it blindly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was like. I, I, I did that for you ages. Until I, until I started questioning things, I was a bit like that. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he said it's true, so yeah. And then I'd argue about it and then someone said, no, you're completely misled. And I was like, no, but I've believed this for... 10 years and he told me that this came from this and that comes from this and you're like, no, here's the evidence and that, all right, I'm wrong, okay, good. Well, I'll, I'll still get that today, trust yeah. me. You, you'll get that as well. You'll, you'll find as you go along your little journey, you'll be like, oh, but so-and-so told me this and, and I thought this was true or I read this somewhere and I thought this and then yeah. someone will come up and say something that will contradict it and you'll, then you'll question it and then you'll find out oh, they're right and I was wrong. It's, right. it's so funny though to see how the nature <laughs> of the mind works. Like we want to fixate on to like a belief or idea and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. you know, so attached to those and then, you know, then it's like in a year, your, yeah, yeah. your belief that you would have like, you know, stabbed someone over is like totally dissolved <laughs> and like completely yeah, yeah. changed. But this is like a perfect segue to the last two questions. So, <laughs> 
I asked people to write in and ask questions. So um, Rachel asked, she asked, okay. how do you experience joy when suffering is sitting right beside you? How do you experience joy when suffering is sitting ne right next beside you? Hmm. When I was a little boy, I realized, and it came back to me later in life, especially when I started doing yoga, that when things, things are definitely going to go really wrong in life, there's going to be times in your life where you are crawling up the wall, you're crawling on the floor, and you're absolutely in total despair. You would have to have a really strange existence for that never to happen. Because your mum's going to die. Your, your son might die. Your dog might die. Um, someone might get cancer. Your best, your lover, your husband. Something's going to happen that's going to make you absolutely desperate and despair. It's going to be really difficult to summon up joy from those moments. Um, we all read the newspapers, we all look at the news, there's always a murder, there's always a kidnapping, there's always a sexual assault, there's always a rape and a murder. And you think, when you see the victim's family on the news and, at night and, they, and they're asking them how they, you know, how they deal, within 24 hours of their, their, their lost daughter being found dead, they're on the news talking about it and you're thinking, how are they possibly going to survive? How are they possibly going to get through the next through, through the next days, never mind years and years? They're going to be on drugs, they're going to be on sedatives. So how are they going to find any sort of joy in their life? And the only way I think about getting through it, and the only way I could tell Rachel to get through it is things are definitely going to go wrong. The first premise of Buddhism is you are going to suffer. But the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism and the, the, eight, the eight ways to practice Buddhism are going to somehow alleviate that suffering. It doesn't matter what it is. So without going in technically into Ashtanga Yoga or Buddhism or anything, when things go wrong, things will go wrong. And when things go wrong, really wrong, don't despair for too long. Don't despair because things will change again. Things will change. Time will change, your mind will change, and things will change. So when things go wrong, don't get too deep down in yourself. And see, when things go right, and everything's so jubilant, and everything's perfect, don't get too happy, because there's always going to be something else that's going to be despairing that's going to come along. You've got more than one friend, you've got more than one parent, you've got more than one children, you've got more than one dog, you've got more than one thing to your own health as well that could bring you down. Don't get too happy when everything's going right. So that in yoga is equanimity. And that's what Bhagavad Gita says yoga is. Yoga is equanimity. So when everything's going wrong, don't get too down. And when everything's going so bad, so bad don't get too down and despairing. And when everything's going right, don't get too ecstatic and don't get too super happy. We all find ourselves going, yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah, I've got a nice house in India and everything's going to be fine in my life and I've got a lovely <laughs> boyfriend and everything's going right and all of a sudden, shit, this <laughs> just happened. Same with me, everything's going right in my life, everything's going great. Ah, oh, fuck. The VAT return, the tax return, <laughs> yeah. the electricity bill, the, 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 the toothache, you know, I hurt my back. You know, I can't walk, can't practice, just something. So when everything goes wrong, 
Rachel, don't be too down and when everything goes right, don't be don't be too excited about it because you've got to find the yogi will find the yogi. The yogins you'll find her. Mm-hmm. The yogini will find the equanimity in mm-hmm. situations. And yeah. uh, I don't know how to do it sometimes but you can practice. only aspire to yes, yeah. practice. It gets easier the more practice you get mm-hmm. at it. I used to cycle about when my mum died at first and I thought, ah, uh, I saw my mum in the care home dying and I said goodbye to her and all that and I walked out and I looked at my brother and I just burst out crying. Absolutely hysterical, you know, whatever age I was, two grown men standing crying. And um, and I realised two years later, I'm cycling along the road and I'd go, I better phone mum. Everybody's done this, haven't they? I better give mum a phone or I better, oh, she's dead, that's right. Burst out crying again. Yeah? But like, it's never going to go. The other thing, like, you got to put closure in something. There's no such a thing as closure. <laughs> Nothing closes. Yeah. Nothing closes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've lost your mum. You'll have always lost your mum, and you never got any. You never get any guidance or any therapy for having losing your mum. No one turned around and said to you, "This is how you feel when you you, you use your mum." That you're cycling in the middle of London on a Tuesday afternoon, and you just feel as if you should phone your mum, and it's really depressing because you can't phone your mum. Nobody prepares you for that because it happens anywhere at any time. So, like, just be prepared for those moments and find equanimity, find that balance. That's the best thing. Mm. When joy, when you try to find joy in your own suffering's doorstep, you're never going to be in suffering's doorstep for long, but you don't want to experience joy for too long either. Mm. You want to be, find that equanimity mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. Does that make Somehow. sense? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I guess that's what we have to practice. <laughs> so just to finish, I used to ask, the last season I asked all my guests at the end of the show to give some words of wisdom. And then as I like contemplated that, even being here, I realized, like, actually, for me, I want points to question myself instead of hearing just someone's wisdom and, and trying to take it on for myself. So for this season, you're the first yeah, yeah. guest of this season too. Right. I want to ask you what questions you would, or what even single question you would offer a sadhak, someone that's on the spiritual path, to question within ourselves, to ponder and contemplate. Why do I need to follow anyone or anything? Mm-hmm. Why can't I follow myself? Why can't I be self-governing? This is four questions. <laughs> so that's the same thing but just phrased differently yeah why come I can't follow myself why come I can't be self-governing and why come I can't uh, be autonomous be self-governing don't rely on any state any system any religion don't rely on anybody but you because you have all the answers that you need so keep asking yourself that question and look inside for the answer and don't look somewhere else because somewhere else might not be the most trustworthy and reliable answer. Maybe there is answers out there, but try to follow your own self-governance, your own self-autonomy, which is ontological anarchism. Trusting that you, somewhere inside you, you can find the right answer, even if you get the wrong answer lots of times you'll find the right answer eventually, if you're honest with yourself. So, don't follow 
any don't follow the leader yeah do you get me yeah that there's a sense? lot of leaders that there's a lot of leaders that will lead you down long. yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. don't follow blindly mm-hmm. so you can maybe follow perceptively and extract things you need i think we all do that we extract knowledge from certain places in life but don't follow things blindly try and propagate self-governance mm-hmm. does that make sense that's a good question to leave with i know i'll be pondering that today and a whole bunch of other <laughs> stuff too so thank you so much Sue. No, thank you bobby hope, really, it, helped. hope yeah. it made sense i so appreciate your generosity for the last few weeks being here for the retreat and just whatever my, for my part um when I met you at the festival three years ago and then getting to you and know you on Pixels, <laughs> you've got a lovely soul, you've got a lovely heart and I really like being your friend. Oh, I, I'm so honoured. Not your teacher or your guru or your leader or your governor or anything, but just being your friend and if mm-hmm. anything I can do to help you, I'll do it to help you again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdaya Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.